0: Hello, I'm Bridget and I'm Caroline. You are listening to Hearth, Home, and Homicide, a family production about family murders. My daughter Caroline and I narrate each story and son and brother Andy is our producer. As Caroline and I talk about each family murder, we keep sensitivity for victims and their families in mind. Our podcasts do include violence and trauma. Listener discretion is advised. So hey, Caroline, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Good, good. we're we're I think we're experiencing fall. I think we are. It's a
1: weird thing though, because yesterday, um the fall, I've been welcoming it. I love that windy, kind of cold, brisk weather, but then yesterday was eighty one. And so, you know, nature
0: can be weird. (laughs) Yeah, nature is just such a controller. Oh, my God. You know, I'll show you who's in charge. That's right. They do it all he, she, we'll say she. Uh, Anyway, I don't know how that works, but it's science and I trust it. And yes, yesterday was hot. I first had my heat pump on uh, heat and then later air conditioning. (laughs)
1: <laughs> it was a weird I mean, day. and
0: then you know, finally, when I went to bed, I just turned the whole thing off and just you know, sort it out yourself. <laughs> so today, our episode is called "The Murder of Judy Blake Moylanen." It's a fascinating case, and we were just talking about why we are doing this case today.
1: Yes, you know, by the time this airs, it should be right around the Thanksgiving time. Um that's, kind of, that's one of my most comforting times of year. I do like going into winter with Thanksgiving and Christmas, but uh, that's just me. But uh, this kind of has a lot of common things you would be doing around that time of year. You know, this is kind of takes place in a community that I really found to be quite nice and I liked it. And so hoping the listeners will get a sense of that.
0: Yeah, it's really kind of a unique uh, story, in my opinion, because of the town playing a major character role
1: mm-hmm.
0: in the entrapment and conviction of the murderer within this family, and um, I, I, it was the first time I even thought about murder and the uh, story of how the killers identified and brought to justice can have a lot to do with, um, I guess they call it victimology. And when you're in oh. a close-knit town of not a lot of people and everybody knows everybody, that town and the people in it are probably contributing to either the setup of, of what happened or maybe the bringing that person to justice. And, and yeah. I do think that this person would have gotten away with murder if the town had not um, begun to talk and step up and tell the truth about what was really going on. So this family murder is intriguing, as I said, because he almost got away with it. And I, I also was drawn to it because of that character in our story today known as the Marble man now when we're talking about marble i'm not talking about what's on everybody's countertops or their columns in their palace but i'm talking <laughs> about marbles that you shoot little round glass balls that are a game and a collector's item also now at its heart this is the story of a wonderful woman though a mother of a very young girl beloved daughter friend and wife whose name was Judy Blake Moylennon, and I do not want to forget her because there's a lot of falderall going on, and I don't want anyone to forget about Judy that she she's the last person on this earth that had this coming. Her husband, Bruce Moylennon, murdered her and might have gotten away with it, but for some seriously peculiar circumstances, which is one of the reasons that we wanted to talk about this case today. And yes, the Thanksgiving connection that everybody's going to, I think, resonate with. Also, we're going to a very small town where the family resides alongside neighbors that probably feel like family. And we wondered originally when we talked about this case, if the town played a role in the circumstances of this family murder. And and I think we both came to the conclusion, a big role. Mm Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm interested in hearing our listeners' opinions about that after the telling of this story. The death of Judy could have been chalked up to an accident, but for the investigation, which was more thorough than taking things at face value, much to the chagrin of the killer. It involves something called the sweater letter mm-hmm. and a man nicknamed the Marble Man and a number of close-knit neighbors in a rural area seeing through the fog and connecting the dots. Judy Morlennan was born and raised in Ontonagon, Michigan, part of the upper peninsula that straddles Wisconsin. It is on Lake Superior, and I know it's very, very pretty up there. She grew on a piece of land called Cherry Lane, which was right next to the woods. She loved being a mom. She loved being a nurse at the hospital, and she read voraciously. So she, she strikes me as a very calm, organized person with a big heart. She cooked out of necessity, not out of necessity, but joy. I suppose there was some necessity to cooking. Right. <laughs> There'd <laughs> there be a little a bit, family. but... But I mean, you know, she just is remembered as someone who was joyous about her cooking. Judy Moylan was so happy and contented to be a homebody. And homebody, being a homebody, that is vastly underrated.
1: Oh, I'm a homebody. I'm a, oh yeah, I love being at home. And I recognize that sometimes I have to say, okay, sure, I'll leave my house. But for the most part, yes, there is a
0: major joy to be found at home. (laughs) Yes, that's right. Your comfort. In fact, the whole circle of people involved in this case seem to be happy people living a life that revolved around family and service to others. Nothing fancy, but very comfortable and full of tradition. And one huge tradition in the area is hunting. It's more than tradition in some ways. It is definitely a huge part of the rhythm of life for residents of Ontonagon. On the day of her death, Judy was helping her mother wrap up the Thanksgiving holiday. We all know what that is. That's not just leftovers. It's also put the chairs back where they were Mm -hmm. before you brought them all to the table when you were going to have a family feast. It was Sunday, November 29th, 1992, and everyone was in the woods who liked to hunt because it was the last weekend day before the final day of Michigan's firearm deer season, set to close the very next day. So you can only shoot deer with guns on certain days. And then after that, you got to resort to bow and arrow. And after that, you don't get to shoot them at all. So everyone in the woods would be wearing orange vests, hanging out in blinds, those tall wood, you know, they look like tree houses to me, Mm -hmm. where you get up and you watch uh, for wildlife that you're um, hunting. They were, uh, ch- or they were maybe busy chasing down the deer that they just shot or shot at, trying to figure out, did I wound it? I'd want to put it out of its misery and put it in my pickup truck. <laughs> so Judy was walking with the dogs in the woods next to Cherry Lane. And remember, this is where she grew up. No hunting took place close to residential areas, so she should have been safe. Her mom, Mary Ann Blake, started to worry after a few hours. It was 2.15 when she decided to go into the woods and find her daughter, Judy. One dog had already come home, but where were the others? When it got too disorienting for Judy's mom, she went home and fetched a neighbor, built or He found Judy's lifeless body in the woods. Mary Blake screamed when she saw that her daughter, Judy, had been shot dead. And Caroline, when I say scream, I'm thinking primal scream, blood-curdling, scream. Human beings are not built to comprehend the death of one's own child. Yeah. We've heard that time time and time again,
1: that there's usually a sound not typically uttered that comes out of a mother's mouth when she finds out her child has been uh, murdered or hurt or, you know, isn't alive anymore. And the other thing I will say is I'm going to travel with dogs more because the dogs tend to be the indicators in these cases where people go for walks and then they're just not, they don't come back home. You know, one of the first indicators is one of your dogs comes home. So, you know, that was a good lucky break because I agree, but out there, you know,
0: I agree. And, you know, one of the beauties of living in a small town with woods and lakes and, Uh, all, all that sort of thing. And I grew up this way where you didn't, I didn't ever put a dog on a leash my whole growing up time (laughs) that what is going on a walk that means you got to go put a saddle on your dog and (laughs) confine it to like four or five feet of line. I mean, what the hell is that? (laughs) Unless you're trying to teach your puppy, yeah, you know, uh, to come to you, then you get a long line and you put it on a saddle right. and you drag it back to where you are. <laughs> anyway, local law enforcement were on the case and they also contacted Bob Ball, who was with state law enforcement. Very smart move. I really like this because some local law is hesitant to bring in state help. And we've all heard stories about that. So I already like Ontonogan's law enforcement. Because it wasn't popular in 1992, law enforcement was still very siloed off. Yes. Um, jurisdiction was all and everything. And they called in uh, Bob Ball. Investigators interviewed everyone in the area the day of Judy's death, and they pinpointed everyone's location and who they were with. So I'm thinking about, you know, those colored pins that you can put in a map and kind of trace it. You know, I don't think they went to their computers and went to their databases. I think they had a map. In 92, for sure. All still paper. They paid particular attention to Judy's husband, Bruce Moylenon, who worked at the same hospital as his wife. They interviewed people at the hospital and they asked questions about Bruce. The most telling was that most of the women there thought that bruce was single by the way he acted what that hell? is
1: a very telling piece of information i would There's also to unpack there. there
0: yeah bruce is in a small town okay that's um, the picture is coming into focus and yet there he stands pretending to be available for other women in the workplace of his wife it's weird what a weird thing well, it's, it's a form of arrogance, I think, maybe a sign that he's an arrogant, I could use a lot of bad words right now. <laughs> when, I mean, she, he's got a young daughter. I mean, you would think that the honor of his family might mean something. Yeah. But no, He's he's, uh, he's doing what he's doing. When investigators interviewed Bruce, they asked him the usual questions about their marriage. Oh, it's great and about life insurance oh we only have about 40000 or so and they asked him where he was on the day of his wife's death caroline he listed so many places and names of people who could put him here or there that the detectives instantly grew suspicious when something sudden happens all you killers out there it is really stupid To have a long list of where you were exactly, and oh, by the way, would you like my receipts? Right. And I took a picture of myself with today's newspaper. Would you like to see it? Right. Yeah, I mean.
1: Too much evidence of your innocence.
0: Absolutely. You know, where are you going to find access to your brain when your wife has been killed? Right. Right. I don't get that either. Yeah. Yeah. But it was just a reaction to Bruce. He seemed to have an awfully detailed account of where he was, who he was with, and the exact times that it just didn't match with a normal day hunting when you don't know in advance that your wife will be shot. Right. And I really think that when you're hunting, you don't even know where you're going to be going.
1: I don't even think you bring a watch and I know you don't know what time it is. I think you're looking at things like shadows and stuff. You get like real into nature. That's my assumption. I've never hunted. I've fished, but I like hunters as people. I've eaten their yeah. uh, deer meat, super good. Yum. I You know, but my presumption is you're not bringing a ton of technology with you. You're not. No. You know, it's just, it's, you're spending a solid eight to 12 hours out there in the woods to get some
0: meat. That's kind of the whole point. I mean, maybe survival for many people in America, really. And I think in this part of the country, that might be a survival thing. But I don't think that they do it as a survival. I think they do it as a way of life. Right. And they do it with groups of people. And I don't think this um, Bruce guy is going to be the boss of everybody. So, you know, they're going to maybe follow the leader or whatever. But anyway, suspicions were raised enough for Bob Bell, the state detective, to reach out to someone he knew named Dan Castle, who just happened to have a metal detector. Uh, You know, the metal detector that I never found anything but Coke bottle tops, but I did try my hand at metal detecting at one time. And uh, it's fun. You just think that you're turning over a great big fat ruby ring, and it turns out, you know, it's Coca-Cola or Pepsi. That was pretty much it. Oh, man. <laughs> so anyway, <clears throat> a woman has been shot dead, but Bell had no gun and no bullets from the murder scene. He knew that if he could just find a bullet that had hit Judy, he would be able to figure out the type of weapon used And he'd probably also figure out where the killer was standing when the killer took aim. I just, I want to take
1: this, I want to take this moment to just really highlight, this is where investigators really separate themselves. I mean, this is a mind built for this job. That's, I just thank you, Detective Bell, because you're in the right place at the right time. (laughs) That's
0: right. And, um. he, Bob Bell, state detective, had learned from the medical examiner that the bullet that killed Judy shot right through her body, so it had to be under leaves and light snow near Welsh where she had uh, her body had fell dead. Bob Bell and Dan Castle. Now, Dan Castle's just a guy; he's not a detective with anybody. But Bob Bell thought, "Oh, Dan has a metal detector." Yeah. so they went to the scene and they searched, but they turned up nothing except for a fresh notch on a nearby tree. So you're looking around and you see, huh this this gash yeah. this notch in the tree where she was killed, it looks like maybe the not the right height for maybe uh what else could make a notch in a tree? Maybe a black bear or uh, right. an elk or something like that. But it was, no, it was higher than that. Okay. There were many unsuccessful tries to find the bullet or at least a casing. And Dan Castle asked if he could try one more time before giving up until spring. And this was the next day. They, they didn't find anything the first day. So he wanted to go out again. Okay, Bell said, but he didn't have much enthusiasm because he felt like they would have found it the first time. Oh, okay. So out goes Dan Castle. He took a slingshot and some marbles with him. Now, this is going to give away who is the marble man. Well, it's Dan Castle. (laughs) For good reason, though. I mean, this is a great piece of this story. I know. I love it. He made an assumption that the notch on the nearby tree was a wound from the bullet that went through Judy's body. He determined the angle as best he could, and he stood in a spot that would easily be used as cover for the shooter. He shot several marbles at the notch in the tree, and all the marbles landed in a certain spot. He looked under the leaves where the marbles were congregated, and he found a newly shot bullet, bullet. He he knew he had hit pay dirt. So, God, that was the man. (laughs) He's the man. He is the man. That was the first big break, not just in this case, but it was also the dawning of Dan Castle's new nickname in town, the Marble Man. And I, I do love Dan Castle. I love the idea of that there are Dan Castles in this world. And that good old-fashioned American know-how. These are like the basic tools of survival we're talking about is figure it out through geometry, through logic. Yes. Yes. I love it. It's so simple. And, and, (laughs) And never giving up. Never giving up. Yes. So the next several breaks came from Bruce Marlennan himself. Judy's husband, Bruce Marlennan, was a dreamer. Good with schemes to make money and terrible with holding on to the money he actually had. He kenneled dogs to make money, worked at the hospital operating a particular scanning machine, but he was always borrowing money and he was never good at paying it back. He borrowed from banks, borrowed from family and friends, and borrowed from blood kin. And he was a bit peculiar socially. He latched on to people and considered himself a close personal friend, never realizing that those people loved Judy and they loved her little toddler daughter, Elsa, but they only just tolerated him because of their love for Judy and Elsa. So here we see the town coming together in a picture in my mind of how you get along with someone you love and their daughter and you support them and you never say a bad word about this blankety blank that she has married. Mm. I'm going to just call him a deadbeat. Yeah. And that's a compliment. As we go through the story, I'll change that to killer, of course, and stupid idiot and some other things. But anyway, Mm. The next several breaks came from Bruce Mullin um, uh, himself. Oh, I, sorry, sorry. I've already covered that part. The best and most relevant example of, of, of um, Bruce Molennin's missed Miss Q's social style would provide a huge clue in this case. Bruce described his very best friends to be Gail and Paul Lampinen. When police interviewed them, they described Bruce as someone they barely knew who acted as if they were family. So I barely know you, and you think that you're related to me or that we're family. Horning in on their time together, acting silly and flirtatious. He's a nuisance. We wish would just go away, they both said.
1: Oh, my goodness. And by
0: both said, I mean they're telling detectives this. Yeah. I just just have to stop and talk about, Caroline, overly familiar people who love to love bomb so that they can take, 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 take.
1: Well, and maybe that's it. Because for me, I'm like, I, t- you know, I have my own neuroses. I get it. I'm on the other end of the spectrum where I just, I make the presumption that people are just being cordial and nice and so I'll flee right away so you don't have to, you know, have the burden of my company if you don't really want it, right? Yeah. But this is the opposite of that. This man thinks everyone loves him and adores him and everything he does is magical and wonderful and wonderful. I mean, it has to be that way if he's going to be flirting and pretending to be single in the same workplace as his spouse. Like, it's weird. I'm having trouble sort of relating to his potential perspective. This,
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, if somebody is so obviously embellishing and being grandiose and overstepping social boundaries... And all of these things that he's doing, now those are the things that he's doing in the light of day. Right. When everybody can see it. Yeah. They can see right through to his collarbone when they look at him, but they don't say anything because they love Judy and Elsa and also her parents. And, you know, they just, it just, to me, it just reeks of insincerity. And this was very important for the officers to know. Anyway, we, we've we already sort of talked about overly familiar people who love bomb and take and take and take, and that's one of my least favorite and your favorite type of people. But one day, not long after Judy had been killed, Bruce showed up at Gail and Bruce's house. Uh, you mean Gail and Paul? Fi- huh?
1: You mean Gail and Paul? Gail and Paul, Paul's house? Gail
0: and- Oh, yeah. Typo. Bruce showed up at Gail and Bruce's house. Maybe that's Freudian. I was thinking that Bruce thinks that's his house. He does, But it yeah. actually to Boy, he got you, Gail. Mom. He got you. <laughs> he did. He did. He's, he's, under, he's under my skin. Anyway, thank you. It showed up to Gail and Paul's house with five big boxes of sweaters that he said, Judy, had packed for Gail to have just a few months before she died. So, okay, let me get this straight. You've got boxes and boxes of sweaters that belong to Gail that, that belong to Judy, and Judy had packed them for Gail, and she did that a few months before she died. And so, I mean, I wonder why she didn't give them to Gail as soon as she packed them up. Or- and. are did, yeah, did Jay know range, this was going on? Do you
1: want them, like, or yeah? I why are you packing sweaters
0: during winter to give away? Like, I don't know.
1: None of it really makes sense.
0: Well, not only that, but she, I don't believe it, yes. and that did seem terribly odd and improbable, since Gail didn't even know Judy.
1: Oh well, there's not I guess.
0: She <sighs> knew she knew Bruce, oh. but she didn't know Gail. I mean, she didn't know Judy. Yeah. Gail did not know Judy. Oh, wow. Later, after Judy died, Gail finally did go through the box of sweaters. And in it, she found a letter from Judy to Gail. What the hell? When Gail read the letter and showed it to her husband, Paul, they decided to call the police. Must All have been right. one hell of a letter, so let's get into it. The letter read in part after, Fort, quote, This is right out of the letter. It's unbelievable, but here it is. After 14 years of being married, we just don't see things the same anymore. But Bruce is a great guy, none better. At this point, you are the only woman he trusts. Talking about Gail. (laughs) Please help him find another woman after we divorce. Love from Judy. And it had a PS, Caroline. Don't tell the prospects, but believe it or not, he's incredible in the sack.
1: Oh, the strangest letter ever written. I feel
0: like Donald Do you Trump believe written- that Judy wrote this letter?
1: No. I don't think Judy talks like that. I don't think I don't think any human being on the planet with any sense writes a letter like this this is a weird letter to write. I don't know of humans who talk like this and they don't put it in a box of letters or sweaters, excuse me, (laughs) to give to a stranger. I just oddest set of circumstances that have ever come together. I think.
0: Oh my God. You know, it's just so weird. Um, The whole thing is just so weird. Uh, Anyway, that's folks is called the sweater letter and that was you know starting to go on the board you know the board with where is everybody on thanksgiving day and and the husband is uh, flirting with everybody at the hospital and he flirted heavily with all these other women sending unsolicited and unwelcome cards cards like Hallmark cards constantly with messages such as Naked mud wrestling available upon request. How did Judy even find this man? I mean. I don't what? know.
1: <sighs> Poor Judy. You were deceived. You know, I know you were you
0: just. Wh- you, this, this is a small town. Yeah. And it's surrounded by other small towns. Yeah. Okay. and And, you know, there are plenty of opportunities to meet other people from all over the world if you want to. But, you know. Judy was a homebody and she yeah. she was she wanted a family.
1: Right, right. And
0: she wanted to raise that family, be part of a family. She wanted what her parents had, she wanted what her friends had. And sometimes when you want something so bad and I've done this, oh yeah. you fail to give weight to red flags. Yes. I think that happens and, all, nearly
1: every time, because I think we've all can relate to that where we've ignored known indicators of a person's, you know, yeah personality.
0: But you're just, you're just not, to you, the love that you get from this person and the love and the promise of a future full yeah. of hope and, and joy it's just so el- overwhelming emotionally, especially when you're young yes. and you're just driven to have that family. Yes. I understand wh- how she wound up with a loser. He, you know, every person, man or woman has their faults and it's very difficult to be in a marriage and running into those faults all the time and you just want to hammer them over the head to get the faults out of there. Okay. But, <laughs> but this guy, this guy, is not that. He's not just somebody with human foibles. Yeah, This guy is seriously caught up in his own fantastic self. And he doesn't even have an inkling of the impact he has on other people, how he's coming across. Do you think he's a
1: con man? Do you think some of this was a potential con for him? Or do you just think he's just a awful person and judy got caught up and unfortunately
0: duped in a way i want to say that he is a con man and that that is a really apt description yeah he's not a successful con man no because people can see right through him and they are uh they have the creeps yeah about him yeah but Again, they love his wife. They love his, you know, his daughter. And, but he's not really, he is able to con people out of little things. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, I do think that there's a component of trying to gain the confidence of other people in order to exploit them. And that is what a con man does. Yeah, yeah. So this con man, plus killer and a lot of other stinky, awful things, sent another letter to a would-be love interest that investigators dubbed, quote-unquote, the asset list, in which he described himself to a woman who he barely knew, I've got $387,000, a house on 324 acres, a couple of bills, If you know of a 30-something girlfriend for me who will be beautiful inside and out, please let me know.
1: This guy's weird in ways I just don't understand. It almost is like a seven-year-old. Right. It's very childish. Yeah, it's like weird. Like putting his hands over his eyes. You can't see me now. Like it's just a weird way to think. (laughs) Right, oh my on the god, stand. what a great and fitting image, Caroline. That's I always go back to that when people do weird things I don't understand. I'm like, okay, that must be what your brain has categorized what you're doing as because it's not working and we all see it, but you're clearly latching onto it as a right,
0: <laughs> you know, like, right, like, you know, watching 10 hours of a detective's interrogation of a known killer caught in the act of killing caught with every dna molecule of their (laughs) they're just caught caught yeah and they're still now in prison denying their guilt yeah yeah it's that anyway uh so he's a creep and a con man and as we know now a killer But then there was another thing that detectives uncovered. And this to me is the community, you know, if you see something, say something, Mm -hmm. they're not into that. If you see something, don't say anything because that would just be rude and it's going to cause trouble. And that's my cousin and she's married to my third cousin over here. And so, you know, I, and and he's the pastor of my church. Please don't say anything. Right. So this bothers me that the community did not go, you know, it just bothers me. Yeah. And it's called the Chimney Block Incident. And, um, you know, again, up on the board in the police headquarters, the Chimney Block Incident. In 1991, this is a year before she's murdered. In 1991, Judy was in the yard and Bruce was up on the roof working on the chimney when a rogue cement block fell on Judy's head just at the moment that she was bent over. And had she been upright, it would have undoubtedly crushed her skull. She was hospitalized, Caroline, and she slowly recovered. So... A year later, when Judy was found shot dead in the woods near her childhood home, friends and neighbors remembered varying stories coming from Bruce. First story, that block slipped off the roof edge. Second story, scaffolding collapsed and a block slid off and onto Judy. Third story, Judy fell off the roof and struck her head on the patio below. So he's got her on the roof, off the roof. What the hell? And this is just probably the tip of the iceberg of the things that he told other people. Well, and you know can't I... tell me they weren't gossiping with each other. I'm sure well, they were. Boom, right there in a town like this. And Judy, I just,
1: I feel for her because I know she's not dumb. You know what I mean? Like I know that Judy had to have been having feelings of her own about what's going on in my world. You know? What's going on in my relationship? What's going on? In my family,
0: like I, I just, I'm starting to feel real bad. I feel real bad for her. I think that there are people in this world that are shot through with good. Yes. They're just shot through with it. Yes. They just are good. They're so good. Yes. Really, I guess what we call a pure-hearted person. And I believe that Judy is one of those people. Yeah. And I wonder if it is just inconceivable to her. Her brain cannot go there because she has no frame of reference it would it would it would be so, it would be just as logical in her mind perhaps I'm this mind I'm just speculating it'd be just as logical for her to say you know I wonder if it was aliens that came down and knocked that rock that block off the roof yeah. you know in other words it's mm-hmm. so outrageous and beyond the beyond the pale to say that her husband would kill her Yeah,
1: no, that's a good way to frame it, the aliens bit. That does kind of hammer it home where it's like, that would be how foreign it is for her to think of it like that. Right. I think you're right, yeah.
0: Well, I mean, you know, I just see her as saturated in good thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yet the fact that this letter, the sweater letter, um came up and she in it, he Bruce pretended like she was, she was going to divorce him. And then here she's looking for a, a good mate for him. Right. Because they just don't click or whatever. Was that in his mind? Or had she finally said, I've had enough of you. I'm, I'm leaving you. Right. Right. Yeah. No, that that could be what happened she might have said it before the brick
1: fell on her. That's right. We just don't know what's happened. I mean, we don't know what, like, Judy's side is yet. And we, she may have been making preparations, yeah, to get her own life in order. and Maybe.
0: Who knows? So as the interviews went forward by detectives in the death of Judy, every witness was perplexed and suspicious about the block incident, but they didn't know what to think about it. They didn't know... They all brought it up, but gee, you know, could you just have gone to police, but maybe that's just not done. I don't know. Detectives also found out that the house had almost burned down that same year. We're talking about 1991 when a suspicious fire started in the woodpile. It was quickly extinguished, but it could have burned the house down with Judy and Elsa in it. So interestingly, Bruce was not at home at the time. So it's almost like a movie, like you can't even write this stuff.
1: I just, this series of no. events, it's too much.
0: You know, here's a footnote, uh, not related to catching and trying Judy's killer. Many years after her mom had been killed, little Elsa suddenly blurted out of nowhere to her family, at the time, so she's being taken care of by someone else after all of this is over with and and Bruce is caught, uh, she just blurted out, I saw Daddy drop a brick on Mommy's head. Oh, God. Mm. So she was out in the yard when that happened. Was he going to drop a, a brick on her head, too? Well, and what else did she see? You
1: know, what else yeah. did she see as a toddler and not know how to process? And it just sits there
0: replaying in her brain. Right. Just, mm. Yeah. Or maybe she's got an image in her head that she didn't actually see, but because of everything that has happened and, and right. it came out about these other things that she, she yeah. thinks she did see. She's, she's seen it in her nightmares. Mm. She's seen it in her in, day and night as she ponders her place in this world. Her mommy is dead and her daddy's in prison. Oh. But anyway, remember back at the beginning when investigators asked Bruce what life insurance there might be? And he said like forty-eight thousand dollars or something like that. He said maybe there'd be forty thousand. I don't know. Anyway, in the course of the investigation, detectives asked Bruce if they could look around his house and he agreed. You know, he's thinking to himself, I didn't kill her in the house, so you know, what can you possibly find? Right. <laughs> moron anyway they ventured into the basement with bruce who said he didn't mind them taking whatever they wanted just take whatever you want when they found a stash of papers tucked between studs in the wall they took those very smart these papers were life insurance policies on judy's life totaling a quarter million dollars oh my gosh yeah, well I'm sure you know, Bruce, if you just fold all those papers up and put them between the studs, in the wall. Uh,
1: like, they're ne-
0: they're never gonna see those. Yeah, because you walls. put them there. You you put them there, which is a brilliant thought. And so therefore it's perfect, and therefore there's no way they can see them. Oh, yeah, right? That's
1: mm, you can't see me.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're when you when you talk about that and you're fingers are in front of your eyes it is so funny in my in my image I'm watching the little mice run around that treadmill in his head and the (laughs) treadmill is I am glorious I am perfect I am wonderful and I am so smart compared to everybody else in the world that's his little hamster trail you know that he's on Oh, I am okay oh I am (laughs) am, right yeah little little Simpson boy what was what is his name? Home not Homer. What's the kid's name? But we said it as a family for so long after that. Oh yeah. Anytime someone is acting marginally narcissistic, really? Oh, Go so get great. a pot and a pan and start beating on it with a wooden spoon and say, I am so great. I am so great. And <laughs> yeah, have a, like little a little parade. parade. Yeah. So anyway, God. <laughs> <laughs> so they now know that he had a quarter a million dollars in Blythe Insurance, not 40. They know Bruce knows about them because he, of course, is the one who has already tried to cash them out. Oh, my gosh. He got money from some of them, but many of them were waiting for the death investigation to conclude. Yeah, they all should have been waiting, just for those that... They all should have been waiting, that's right. (laughs) All during the time between Thanksgiving Sunday 1992 and a trial for Judy's killer, Bruce just kept being strange. I mean, you'd think he would go to some kind of charm school where he would learn how to socialize with people and not give up evidence. But he's just an evidence machine. Anyway, he's acting strange, I guess you could say, as usual. He was a pest and a nuisance to Gail, the -hmm. sweater letter recipient, and her husband, Paul. The police asked them to please appear welcoming so that perhaps Bruce would confess or something like that. I think that's good. Poor, poor, poor people. But yeah, same with Judy's brother and her parents and his parents, too. All of these people suspected Bruce, even his parents. Oh, my gosh. But detectives asked them to please play it cool and help the investigation. Neither Judy's parents nor Bruce's had any problem with that because it was their only hope of staying close to their beloved granddaughter, Elsa. Yeah. So, you know, they were going to have to be sweet to him anyway. So is it Elise or Elsa? I call it Elsa, but it is spelled E-L-I-S-E, and so maybe it is Elise. Elise. So I've been calling her Elsa for like two years since I, I read about this case. So, so I'm gonna call her Elise. Thank you, Caroline. I'm so
1: sorry. Yes.
0: Yeah. You know, you know, it's Bruce that has got me all effed up in the head. I, he know.
1: really has gotten to you.
0: I can tell him the story. He's the getting name, to me. He's, he's his, getting to his, me I, again. Now remember, Elise is just a topper. Poor Elsa. I had her over in, you know, Germany with little um, Lederhosen on there for a minute. Elise. <laughs> <It> <laughs> but Elise, still, that's very, you know, Nordic, maybe. Anyway, police really wanted to find the gun that was used to kill Judy. They had it narrowed down to a type of gun that Bruce said he did not own. However, they did find an insurance claim. I can, I, I can hardly say this with a straight face, so I got to take a breath. Okay, he said he did not own a gun like that. However, they did find an insurance claim he completed for the type of gun in which he claimed the gun had been stolen. Oh, I am so great. Oh, I am so I great. I am so great. <laughs> Firing on all cylinders, they, this one. <laughs> <laughs> He's getting to you too, Caroline. Anyway. <laughs> I know. Uh, they arrested Bruce Moylanan for... The, the murder of his wife, Judy, when they felt that they had all the evidence they would ever get. Mm -hmm. Detectives could show that Bruce had tried to get people to say he was hunting with them every second of the day of Judy's death. But there was a gap that no one would fill or could fill. And it was the exact time frame they knew the murder had taken place. Well, because she was there was that window where she went out with the dogs and then she did not... And then the other dog came back. Yes. And then, you know, so they, they knew. They knew when it had happened. While in jail awaiting trial, Bruce tried everything he could think of to get family members and friends to vouch for him for the time li- line, for the time lapse in the storyline. But no, no one did it. Nobody stepped up. Not a family member, not a friend. These friends who he thought he was blood brother and blood sister with. Yeah. The ones he was sending cards to, Out, let's do med wrestling. <laughs> Weird. Weird anyway, stuff. Judy's father told Bruce on the phone while he was in jail, son, the best thing that you can do to have a good life is to confess, ask God for forgiveness, and do some good while you're in prison. Yeah. I just think that's just the best advice that you can give a killer, really. I agree. Yeah. That's pretty universal across the board, really. I mean, just. And you know, Like, there are plenty of people who have gone to prison. Yeah. And they have been an exemplar of not just a compliant uh, prisoner, not getting into trouble, not causing any trouble but also doing things like setting up a clinic for this or that, teaching people yes. how to read. Yes. Um, there are a lot of good
1: programs that. for rehabilitation, and I, I know a lot of prisoners have found career paths that really drive them, and they've found passions for things, and right. even if they'll never get out, like you said, they create that in the space that they're in. Right, the exactly.
0: And, you know, they... they um, they really do a lot of good. You know, there are a lot of prisons now that uh, have programs that were started by prisoners to train dogs for service. Yes,
1: or rehabilitate dogs. Yes, that's actually my favorite. And the horses, because both groups are at risk and they're vulnerable and they're unwanted, right? Right. Both groups. And so to find a way to come together and make each other better and give each other purpose in your own, I just, yeah, those are my favorite.
0: Yeah, me too. (laughs) I I mean, you know, it. it, There's just, I just feel like when he says, "Bruce, the best thing that you can do to have a good life," yeah, which is all that daddy is going to want for his son ever. I want you to have a good life. Yes, and so that means you have to confess, Mm -hmm. you have to ask God for forgiveness. Yes, and you have to do good while you're in prison. Yes. I just love him for do, saying that. Yes. And her parents, her parents. I mean, that's just horrible what they has happened to them. I just can't imagine what they went through. Knowing in their heart that Bruce had murdered their daughter. And uh to want good for him or to pretend that they still loved him. Mm-hmm. And I think I think I read that the, even they were uh later, once he was convicted, uh, letting him know that they wished that he would seek forgiveness from God. And I wonder if that was maybe just playing it cool, or if he was truly in that place, and here I'm talking about the father again, so I'm kind of being circular in my explanation, but I'm just marveling at these close parents of the victim and the murderer and how they just want this man to confess. They just want to be with their granddaughter, Elise. And I'm wondering if they just want Bruce to be forgiven because, you know, that's Elise's daddy. Right. Well, this
1: this enters a lot of existential human elements that I think everyone can relate to, but everyone will likely fall somewhere different because it's so complex and different and it's really personal, right? The relationship with your religion is very personal, even if you don't have religion. It's still a personal relationship you you are having with your existence, right? So you kind of create your boundaries, you create your rights and wrongs, your values. You know, like for Bruce, he didn't he didn't do any of the creation. So that's how he was, you know, no value system, no nothing. But Judy was the opposite. So for these people, I think there's a power here when people are this way. And I do believe that both sets of parents are this way just from the things that I've seen and read. But because to do this in the face of everything that's happening, you have to cling to a pure type of love and a pure type of, you know, love for yourself, for your children, for your maker, for your world, for, for love to be the winner every time in the face of, yeah, pure disaster, pure evil, pure awful. So, uh, you know, I can't quite articulate it better than that, but it comes from oh, I the think source of pure that's love. That's
0: well well said. It's well said that um, everyone wants love. Everyone wants a family. They want closeness that is real. And they want to believe in the power of good, God, Yahweh, the universe, but everyone is seeking that meaning and that connection to something bigger than just life on this planet. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a universal thing. And I hope I'm not going to shock you when I tell you that Bruce did not confess, nor (laughs) did he seek the forgiveness of God. I'm not shocked, but, you know, sad. (laughs) But he uh, was surrounded by people who were trying to make that happen at this trial, at his trial. The prosecution was able to bring forth witness after witness after witness to attest to Bruce's love of scheming. Getting to your point about maybe he's just a con man. Yeah. Yeah, he's a con man. Yeah. He committed several insurance frauds, got away with it, such as buying cars that disappeared or caught on fire, that oh, sort of thing. Geez. He borrowed money from people in town constantly and he never paid it back. At his trial, evidence was presented about his previous attempts to murder his wife. Prosecutors had put the cement block, the cement block, that Bruce had claimed to have slid off the roof to their house and struck Judy. No matter how hard they tried, they could not get that cement block to simply slide. Even when prodded, like they kicked it a little bit. Yeah. The block did not gain momentum and slide. It was obviously an attempt by Bruce, who was on the roof at the time, to murder Judy. And they presented that to the jury. My question is why this attempt was not investigated at the time of this attempted murder. But again, I've already covered that. People were, you know, reluctant to do anything to hurt Judy. Jeez, I mean, you know... Not just that incident, but the fire, too. They brought that up in his, in his trial. It's frustrating to think that Bruce's tendency to lie, hit on women at work and elsewhere, continuous schemes to get money and cheat people, and multiple insurance claims didn't raise red flags to police in the community. Bruce was just tolerated by others so that Judy and Elise could be beloved. Little did they know that perhaps they were emboldening him mm-hmm. to commit murder for financial gain. Yep. And I'm sure many of them think about that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Bruce Molinen was convicted of first-degree premeditated murder and will serve the rest of his life in prison. He is 68 years old, currently at Lakeland Correctional Facility. The trial of Bruce Malinon began a year to the day after Judy was murdered. According to the book The Sweater Letter which I read by Dave Distel, quote, the victim ripped from the heart of Ontonagon, the only daughter of one of the village's most respected families. This was god and motherhood and apple pie and all that is good wiped away by an act only one person in the world could possibly begin to understand. Mm,
1: That nails it right there.
0: Yeah, it really did. This is a good book. If you have an opportunity to read more about this murder and this man and this community, The Sweater Letter is a very good book, again, by Dave Distel. And I just love the way he phrased everything in that book to really get to the heart of what was going on. And, you know, I've said some things about the community of Ontonagon, you know, loving Judy so much that they ignored some of these signs that Bruce was putting off all the time. But only one person is to blame for Judy's death. And I'm hoping that the people in the community can see that they just were not wired To see an evil man like this in their midst. Well, and even like you said, they brought in the
1: state police now that they have a true murder, you know, that's, they did, they instantly went to state. So maybe with the brick, they didn't feel like they had any recourse to really seek the justice. I mean, we don't know what side conversations were had in this community. No, we don't know how much they all knew and just felt powerless. Right, right. So you're right. There's only one person to blame in this story.
0: Judy was sort of everybody's daughter, sister, and friend. That's what I got from that book and from even just reading some of the the, uh, lin- the linear uh, story of how he was caught. Yeah. Um, sociologists say that murder ripples through and destroys countless others. And I see that that truth is really on display here. Yeah. Uh, Murder just, it it rips through everything and destroys countless others. Here's some good news. David and Yvonne Blake, Judy's brother and sister-in-law, adopted little Elise. She is 33 years old at the time of this podcast. And uh, I haven't read anything about her. She is probably living the life that her mother lived.
1: Yes.
0: And I hope that she has found true love. And I believe that this community is um, rallied around her. Good. And I saw nothing about her ever leaving Antonopheny.
1: Oh, that makes me happy because it does feel like a really nice town. I mean, honestly, it just seemed like they were as much a victim as as Judy and everyone else in her sphere. So... Oh, what a crazy story.
0: Yeah, you know, Bruce Mullen, he got to me so many different ways, Uh, just, you know, realizing that people are like this, and of course I know that, and you do too, because we do a podcast about killing people, killing members of their own family, and, you know, uh, but I guess. The point I'm making is that um, the town and Judy and Elise and that extended family, yes. I even thought about taking a trip up there. I know. That's how under my is. skin this story got because it's like I want to just stand in the middle of that town and soak it all up. I know. I These know. These people's they so, seem to have the wit and wisdom to understand what life is all about,
1: that's and they it. don't make any
0: apologies about it. And they probably shake their head when people are killing each other over things like pronouns. It, right. It's just for them. it's keep it simple. You know, keep it simple, keep it real. The joy is there. Uh, home and family is everything, yeah. and neighbors, God, yeah. yeah. Um, just that kind of town. And yeah. yeah, I might still go up there. I don't know. I have a nice mind that. up. Yeah. <laughs> but it is sometimes nice to think about all the good that is happening around our stories because we don't pick just any old family murder. We're looking for a tight-knit loving family. Right. That is not quite so tight-knit. And then something happens and or maybe a profession where people are not ratting each other out and somebody's able to do the worst thing imaginable. Right. Those are the kinds of stories and this story just hit me, you know, right between the eyes. Yep. These people have it figured out. And there was a predator, a con man, yep. a liar and cheat, a fraud, who was married to everybody's sister and everybody's mm. daughter and that's what it was all about. So I'm going to end it there, Caroline. Today's episode was research written and narrated by Bridget and Caroline, produced by Andy. Our research is solely based on public domain documents, including legal documents, articles, and books about our subject. Episodes are aired every other week. If you like us, please subscribe and give us a five-star review. Tell your friends about us in person and by social media. We're on Spotify and Apple. All of these actions help new listeners find us. And we really appreciate our listeners because that's what keeps us going. And we really thank you. We appreciate you listeners. And one other thing, please don't forget to live and let live. All right. Bye-bye, Caroline. Bye-bye.